but I played six years professionally, actually. You, oh, you lost two of my... Uh, I, I, you, know, you cut one third of my career. Yeah, come on, Jake. You gotta, oh, that's on me. That's on me. I'm sorry. <laughs> you only have six should... seasons. You can't afford to lose two, all right? Hey everybody and welcome to How the Fuck Did You Get That Job, the show where two not-so-interesting guys ask interesting people one question and then interrupt them as they try to answer it. Joining us today is Nicholas Stone. Nicholas played Australian rules football at the highest level for four years before transitioning into finance. He worked nearly a decade for the Australian New Zealand Banking Group, rising to Director of Corporate Banking for the Americas before leaving to found his own premium cafe and lifestyle brand, Bluestone Lane. Today, he is still the CEO of Bluestone Lane, which now has over 50 locations in New York, San Francisco, LA, DC, Toronto, New Jersey, Philly, and Boston. Nicholas, welcome to the show. And how the fuck did you get that job? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jay. Thanks, uh, David. Good to be here. You know, um, wow. You know, when you talk about it like that, it's been a bit of a wild ride since leaving school uh, in uh, 1999. So, yeah, there, there you go. I'm showing my age. Uh, but I played six years professionally, actually. You, you oh, lost two of my... Uh, I, I, you, know, you cut one third of my career. Yeah, come on, Jake. You gotta, that's on me. That's on me. I'm sorry. <laughs> you only have six should... seasons. You can't afford to lose two, all right? I, I that's, that's on me. That's on me. Um, yeah, no, all good. Um, uh, yeah, so it's been, a, it's been a really very career, but uh, colourful one. But... Uh, you know, it's been, I mean, very fortunate, you know, very fortunate. A few things have worked my way. Um, I've had great coaches and mentors throughout my life, a fantastic family and uh, a lot of friends. And I do think I'm fortunate to have been, you know, growing up in Australia. I'm, I'm Australian, born in Melbourne and moved to New York in 2010, late 2010. And I do think there's this real... I wouldn't say it's like it's a borderline entrepreneurial um, spirit slash sort of sense of adventure. And I think that, that, that we're an island that's so far south and isolated. Um, people are uh, always interested in exploring and they're quite nomadic. And it's actively encouraged at a young age to travel and uh, to experience new things. And, uh, you know, I was, I was always highly sort of enthralled by the opportunity of learning more about different cultures, um, different businesses, different, different activities, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, I think that's given me the, the confidence of trying different things. And I guess that's, that's sort of underpinned how, you know, the, uh, the journey I've been on and how I'm now talking to you guys. So what is that, that sense of adventure? Did you find that in your professional career with the AFL? Was that, was that sparked by that? Or was that more of, you know, like a passion, a culmination of like your athletic journey? Yeah, well, the AFL was, was my childhood dream. So, you know, grew up uh, wanting to be an Australian rules footballer. And uh, at that stage, like really, that was just my sole focus. But I did have a quite a balanced perspective, which was reinforced by my parents that even if you had a wonderful AFL career, let's say you play 10 seasons, you're probably only going to be 27, 28. So you get drafted in AFL very young. So you don't go through college, you get drafted directly from high school. So I was drafted when I was 17. My career was finished at 23, just about to turn 24. So um, even if you're fortunate to have a fantastic career, you finish 27, 28. Like, 
you got a lot of living to do. You got to you got to you got to get a lot of utility. And um, you know, I thought, okay, you know, the next day, do I want to go and do something else? And I was always, you know, captivated by this opportunity of working overseas. And I love understanding business and how it worked and how you build a brand and how you can be profitable and how you build a team and culture and how do you get customers and. So when I was at, when I was playing footy, I, I kept my university study going the whole time. So a three-year bachelor's degree in Australia—that's the typical three years. I know in the states it's four. You know, I did it over six years, so I did part time, and that aligned with my six years in the AFL. So when I finished, what was your AFL, schedule like do, doing that? Like that—that that couldn't have been easy, was it? Like, like you're you're a professional athlete. Like you're you're training all the time. Like how how did you balance that? Man, it's easier. It's easier than uh, working full time and playing like semi semi pro. You know, like you're paid. You, you go to training, right? You can't train for like eight hours a day. It's not how it works. You know, you you go in there and um, you might train in the morning for like two three hours. Then you have a break, recover, and then you train again for sort of two three hours. But you know, you get plenty of time in between. Uh, on the shoulders of those sessions, you get days off where you're just meant to recover. So it actually works out brilliantly. You know, I think there's a bit of a, um, a falsehood that it, athletes just don't have any time to do anything. That's, that's nonsense. You know, I, I think a single mom that's running a household and, and fully employed is a lot busier than a professional athlete. Like you get a lot of support. People are paid just to make sure that you're in amazing condition both physically and mentally, you have an agent, you have all these sort of resources at your fingertips to help you. So, um, you know, I, um, it worked out well with me. I had a, the university I went to in Melbourne with, had a sort of athletes program as well. So I couldn't do an exam because I was playing interstate or what have you. They would make accommodations for that. You could sit it, you know, later when you came back. Um, and how, uh, how common you know, was that with, with like, oh, how were you, the, were you the only person on your team or went, like, I, I would say, that? yeah, I would say back then it wasn't particularly common. Um, I would say, you know, maybe 15, 10% of the team, 15% of the team were actively studying at university or some other sort of vocation. Um, the, this, the AFL, the governing body um, was really, really promoting players to, further invest in their education and, and they would pay for it. So That's if you awesome. pass, they would pay for your subject. So you know, I had my undergraduate degree paid for by um, this, the AFL Players Association, which was, wow. which was terrific. So there's no, there was no economic burden. So, you know, they tried to really incentivize it. And they also have under the collective bargaining agreement, um, so you have to have a minimum of uh, like a day and a half um, off a week where they, the, cl- the club can't ask you to come in. So you try and schedule university subjects, you know, around those sort of windows. But also like I studied business or commerce and, you know, it's it's easier to study those that type of degree because it's not really an applied learning. It's really more sort of textbook and you know if you think about if i was studying medicine or osteopathic medicine on or um science you know you have to be in the lab you have to be very present you're working on people or you're working on uh organisms that need to be managed in a particular environment with me you know i could go to my lectures and then i could study a textbook or you know the materials are available online so i was more fortunate from that perspective but uh, yeah 
It sounds yeah. like the the American leagues could uh, take some advice from the Australian leagues and <laughs> just providing resources because it really sounds like you were set up to succeed from the league. Um, what what did that transition look like from AFL uh, to investment banking? Uh, like, did you did you know your career was dwindling and wanted to take that next step, or did you prematurely jump into it? <laughs> I was a bit of a journeyman. I played three seasons, two years at each. I was very fortunate that all teams were based in Melbourne, so I didn't actually move out of home. So that was also a huge comfort and advantage I guess I had to free up some time and support my study. Um, but, you know, uh, if I had a two-year contract, then I had a four one-year contract. So I was playing for my career every year which meant, you know, it was, was an intense period and I constantly had to try and innovate and improve. And, uh, you know, I, I think that by the end, after my sixth season, I think I was, I was done. You know, I would, I'd be in and out of the first team. Um, I, you know, I would, if I wasn't playing the first team, I was playing what they call the reserves. I would play really, really well. Um, and, you know, probably some of my best ever football and then I would, uh, I would go up and I would either struggle for an opportunity or I just wouldn't perform as well because I'm constantly thinking that, I, you know, I'm on this one-year deal, but I don't play well today. If I make one mistake, I'm not going to get a new contract or um, I'm going to lose my position in the team. And, and that was really tough. And, and I didn't handle it as well as I should have. I think I should have communicated that more honestly and, um, and, you know, I think if I was in the same situation now, given the awareness around mental health and um, how important controlling your, your, your psychological state is to performance, I probably would have had a more successful career. Um, you know, I'm still very proud of everything I did and, you know, playing professional for that long and playing in front of big crowds was great. But, um, you know, I didn't achieve you know, everything I dreamt of. But you know, the way that life works <clears throat> and if you create your own luck and you have some, some serendipitous timing, you know, when I finished uh, AFL, you know, which was around, you know, at the end of the 2005 season, um, in 2006, I had this internship at UBS uh, and investment banking and uh, I was able to then stay on and then I moved to ANZ to join their private equity type business or which was called Capital Solutions and working also in corporate finance and, and client insights. And, and uh, that was really, really fortunate because I got in just before the financial crisis. So I was able to secure a role that um, they were hiring graduates and, um, you know, I was able to start a lot earlier than my other sort of uh, the other graduates and part of an intake because, um, you know, I, I was working at UBS. So, uh, you know, it's, it's funny how it all works out. If I played AFL, I may not have got the grad role because of the financial crisis. I then wouldn't have had the opportunity to work in New York and, you know, and then obviously New York predicated um, being able to start Bluestone Lane. So, uh, you know, it's you, you never you can never get anything right, but you got to make the most of the opportunities. And you know, if one door closes, you got to keep persisting. You got to reflect. You got to constantly keep learning and challenging. Remain humble. And uh, you know, I've been really always focused on being a great contributor to a team. I love being part of 
a part of a team, particularly high performance teams. I'm not particularly good and 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 mediocre. Like I, I'm, I'm too outspoken. I'm too driven. You know, I push people because that's the type of environment that I thrive in, and that's what I want to be a part of. So, um, I was very lucky to transition from sports into banking, particularly sort of corporate finance investment banking, where there is a lot of um, there's urgency. There's a lot of ex- there's high expectations to deliver for our clients, and um, you know I love that gamification. Like we've got to win this deal, or we've got to work really hard, and we've got this clock, we've got to get it ready for this presentation, or we've got this financing, or we're going to buy this company, or what have you. And um, the transferable skills from professional sports are absolutely extraordinary. Is and there a particular uh, is there a particular win yeah. that sticks out in your mind, like? Uh, like you're talking about like it, it's, it is very gamified. Like throughout your 10 years, is there one win where you're like, that was, that was it. That was the best win. Um, in, in banking specifically. Yes. In banking specifically. Uh, uh, I think, I think, you know, there's a, there's a couple that, that came at the bank I was at, we had a, uh, during the financial crisis, um, we had uh, our second biggest exposure in the entire bank was a, um, a, a group that um, would export um, agricultural products. They had a, a monopoly on the market and we had a tremendous amount of exposure, billions and billions and billions. And um, we were sent in there as advisors to restructure it, debt advisor restructure it and get a financing. And I think that was like extreme pressure because we were effectively reporting almost daily to the CEO of, of ANZ, you know, a hundred billion dollar company with like 40,000 employees. Right. And that was pretty, that was pretty amazing. Um, for someone like me, that was only 25, 26, 27. Um, that was, that was a huge one. And we got that one done. And then I think when I moved to the States in, uh, to 10 to 11, I had the opportunity to build a corporate finance team in New York and in London. And so I would work two weeks in New York, two weeks in London. The Australian banks did really well during the financial crisis. We didn't have the asset price depreciation. We didn't have the housing market collapse. Uh, we had sort of more stringent regulatory processes. We just didn't have the subprime challenge. So ANZ saw this as a terrific opportunity to expand its, um, its institutional investment bank uh, and invest more in New York, invest more in London, particularly focus on multinationals that are going to grow in Asia. And was that, a tough, was that a um, tough decision for you to, to get out there? Like to, to I, I, I assume, you know, you've been in, at, at that point, you'd been in Australia essentially your whole life. Like, was it? Well, I had, so it's funny, right? So I always wanted to go to New York. That was one of the main reasons I, I, I wanted to work in banking because I wanted to work overseas and I was just absolutely obsessed with New York. I think more than anything, because um, the fact that it's the epicenter of not only commerce, but just fashion, music, culture, hospitality. It was just a magnetic place that I wanted to, to be in. And I visited there before when I finished footy and I just had like the best week of my entire life. And sure enough, um, I, uh, I went for a job interview in 2009 and uh, I, had, um, I had an interview in New York, I had an interview in London and my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, very fortunately, Alexandra, um, she, she came, she was actually doing some modeling overseas. She was studying at uni doing osteopathic medicine 
but she was modeling as a part-time job in Australia. And then she wanted to have a year overseas. And so she went to London and uh, she was doing modeling there. Anyway, came back and we went to New York. And so I had this job interview and then, you know, we went to London, had a job, job interview as well. And it was sort of like a trip we did. But at the same time, she interviewed with a few modeling agencies. She thought, you know, why not? If Nick gets a job, I'll see if I can plan one. So I come home. I'm told you're not going anywhere. Like the financial crisis, all these banks are exploding. Lehman's done. Bear Stearns is, you know, sold. And, you know, there's all these, it's just carnage. And she gets this letter from Ford Model Agency saying, hey, we want to sign you to a three-year deal and here's your visa and all that sort of stuff. So wow. she, she ended up going... And uh, so we did long distance for like a year and a half. She spent actually most of her time in Paris. They bounced between Paris and New York. And, uh, you know, she suddenly stumbled upon this international career that she never thought she was going to have. Like she, she never had, and she never had these ambitions, you know, she never, she never sort of thought, thought about it. And then, um, yeah, you know, it, I found a way to get there through studying effectively because uh, I couldn't get transferred. So I said, all right, I'm going to do an MBA and at, at Melbourne University and they send um, uh, a number of their students um, overseas to different to do an exchange. So I'd set my eyes on exchanging uh, at NYU where Melbourne University has a reciprocal relationship. And, um, you know, that sort of process provided me the opportunity to uh, – to get overseas, but I didn't get the transfer to NYU. I got it to Copenhagen Business School, but I found another way to get there. And then at that stage, the market was sort of turning and then ANZ changed their mind and said, hey, actually, we're going to give you the opportunity to build the business in New York and London. But the one caveat is, if you can't pull it off in nine months, you've got to come home. So, um, you know, it, it was not, nothing was like given to me and uh, it, it was never like smooth sailing. But, you know, I, I said, yep, great, I'll take it on. And, um, you know, worked super hard and I was really lucky. Like six months into the nine, they said, yeah, confirm role and I ended up getting a promotion and an opportunity to build a bigger team. And, yeah. You know, how big was your team? How big was your, t- like, your nine-month team? How, how many people did they give you? And what, what was that environment like? Because I'm sure, like, like you, you're if you're leading that team, you're doing whatever it takes to make that nine months work. It was it was tiny team, you know, it was five, four or five people. It was just a very small team, but it was more the 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 confirmation of the resourcing and um, you know to go from nothing uh, in a troubling economic environment uh, was was a was a great sense of validation. And yeah, you know, we had uh, a, a lot of. A lot of success. You know, one of the what the other deal that you know when you were asking about that, that really stood out is like we pitched Apple on a um, supply chain or a structured supply chain financing program in Asia, and um, you know we did this analysis to show that when you you know Apple doesn't make anything right, so it's all it's all of their third-party suppliers that manufacture everything as it relates to the phone or computer. So let's just take the phone. So the screen. You know the the microphone, the the chips, the battery. Everything's made by these different um, these different supplies, and it's assembled by a big guy like you know Foxconn or Honhai, what have you. And then you know the phone's made, and Apple's already pre-sold the phone right to to AT and T at T-Mobile. Like it's brilliant, right? They're the best working capital cash management you've ever seen. And um, 
you know, we pitched this idea saying that like your payment terms and the, and the order volume to a number of these players, and they have like, I don't know, 10,000, 20,000 suppliers in Asia, are going to be super stressed. And if one of these guys can't deliver on time, you know, the ripple effect is basically you can't sell as many phones as you hope to in the first two weeks of when you launch the new iPhone update. And um, we had the ability to, uh, you know, we were, we were sort of at the assistant treasurer level pitching it, and then we went to the treasurer, and then it went to the CFO. And that was huge, absolutely huge for us. Um, when we were in a top-tier bank and, you know, having the opportunity to, to work with them and pitch it in Cupertino and then work on the deal um, and then get it over the line was uh, massive. I think that was a real um, turning point in my career, like the biggest company in the world. And, you know, you you provide them a solution that they love and then, you know, bring it to life, which was uh, which is super cool. So they're, they're two examples. Yeah. So that's, that's unbelievable. Just like the sink or swim kind of mentality. And I think that's something that you probably took from your athletics days as well. What was after the Apple deal um, and just continuing with that? Yeah, so, so you know, I started – when I was at uni, I couldn't believe – this is where it sort of plays in the blue my story. At university, I couldn't believe how different the coffee culture was, right? So, you know, in Australia, there's no Starbucks. There's no Dunkin'. There's no Tim Hortons. There's no Coffee Bean Tea Leaf, right? There's no Pete's. It's a land of independence. It's particularly sophisticated – where, where I'm from in Melbourne. It's like one of the culinary capitals of the world. So when I arrived in the States in late 2010, like, you know, the US had a very, um, I would say, uh, mediocre reputation around coffee, right? That, um, you know, the coffee's not uh, at the same standard as it is in Australia and many parts of Europe, right? And uh, it's more commoditized and it's, it's a more functional product to give people uh, caffeine and uh, to get them through the day. So... When I moved, I couldn't, and I was studying um, in New York, I couldn't believe when we go to get coffee that no one talked about going to the local. They were just talking about going to, you know, whatever was most convenient. And typically it was sort of Starbucks, right? Nearly every corner. And the experience wasn't personal at all. The product was pretty ordinary. Um, There was no healthy food. It was all processed and comes in frozen every day. And the atmosphere and just the aspirational elements, you know, weren't really there. I just thought, wow, this is pretty expensive for something that's, that's pretty, you know, average. And um, I guess I, I started thinking about it then. Like, is there, there must be more people like me that are interested in sort of a more elevated coffee culture and better quality product, better quality service, better quality environment, a lot better food. And, and so I started kicking around the idea at, at, um, at business school and working on it because I was fortunate. I was studying one of my subjects and, and one of like the focus of my, that year studying was on um, primarily like venture capital. So I had this opportunity to work on a project for sort of, I don't know, four or five months. And, um, you know, I decided to focus on uh, coffee. And the one thing that I would say that was extraordinary is even though, you know, the, the coffee experience I, didn't, I think was, was fantastic, there was a movement. There was a movement towards premiumization. There was investments happening in brands like Blue Bottle and investments in Bills and you know, Lifelong or what have you. But most importantly, is like I, 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 you know, in late 2010, I couldn't believe when Starbucks market cap was like 80, 90 billion. And I literally fell off my chair. I'm like, Starbucks is worth only $100 billion US. 
And um, when I, I started, I started becoming an absolute obsessed student on Starbucks. And I think that they're the best hospitality brand the world's ever known. And I'm simply in awe of what they've achieved. I'm, I'm not a customer, but I absolutely am in such admiration for what, how the company they've built, the way they've done it with the, the sort of values-led approach, um, the way they've looked after their team and being at the forefront of um, sort of conscious capitalism uh, achieving both amazing shareholder returns and um, you know, building something that's you know sustainable and and you know a true market leader, but also doing it in the right way. And so the more I dig, dug into Starbucks, I was shocked also that the number two player in the world was worth about sort of six billion, which was Duncan. Uh, Costa was sort of like a similar size. So to have a moat that's like an eighty billion dollar moat in in an industry which is commoditized and the structural barrier of entry is not that high you know it's not like some unique algorithm that no one can ever crack i was just blown away and the fact that starbucks only started in the 80s so i just thought there must be an opportunity to build sort of like a premium starbucks that's more focused on being boutique and having better quality product better service better environment aesthetic so and then heavily influenced by what i was used to at home and um that sort of greatly shaped the, the the business idea and the value proposition and then it was about okay you know how do you scale and you know i was obsessed with building a brand i didn't think that you know you can't scale unless you build a brand you need you need that consistency the continuity um this emotional attachment and you know, going to a local cafe should feel like a, a like a luxurious affordable escape I felt like people need this. They need to take a break and they need to feel wonderful. They need to walk in and, and walk out with a smile and feel personalized and recognized. So um, building a brand and then how we could do that, a big part of it was tying into this lifestyle movement. And Australia was sort of probably at the forefront of it. There's a number of factors being the, the, the rising living standards in Asia and the middle class, um, a greater focus on quality food and quality sort of inputs and and sourcing and transparency around that supply chain, um, greater focus on sort of health and well-being, both physical and mental, and you know this this more awareness around um, having more curated type types of propositions and premiumization, if you will, and that all played into this focus on building a, a lifestyle brand. And um, but you know ultimately, Bluestone Lane is an expression of. A, a business that was created almost out of self necessity. You know, I felt to be my best in New York City, like I had to be able to go local, and, and you know, hence the first store was literally around the corner from um, my office. I, I worked on at two seventy Park Avenue between forty seven forty eighth and Park, and the first Bluestone Lane was on between forty ninth and fiftieth on Third uh, Avenue. So we could go out on Lex, work, walk across one avenue and then like, you know, one block up and we'd be there. Um, and yeah, so there's been a lot of like serendipitous type of measured planning around Bluestone Lane. It, it, it really wasn't left to chance. There was always a, sort of a bit of a thought. There was a, there was a lot of thought in everything I, that I did. And because I had no background in hospitality, right? I never worked a day in hospitality. It's my first hospitality job. Now, I approached it with a very, very sort of strategic and prescriptive mindset. Like, I didn't want to leave really that much to interpretation. I, I had a, a very structured way and very disciplined, and that was sort of combined 
football and and banking. You know, you need to be very, very measured and just need to do an incredible amount of research. And if you're a novice in a new industry, like the way that you can give you the best chance to succeed is one, absolutely be open-minded, but, you know, and and challenge and, and objectify your value proposition. But secondly, like, You've got to be a student. You've got to listen to people. You've got to read. You've got to ask questions. You've got to re- reach out. Like you've got to own it yourself. No one's, no one's restricted from, from reading books. No one's restricted from accessing, you know, most people from accessing the internet, from, from writing someone a letter, from asking them for a coffee, for you know, paying it forward in the hope that, that someone is granted their time to learn more. And that's what I did. You know, that's, that's what I did. I didn't have... You know, I didn't know all these coffee professionals, like none of my best mates were in hospitality. So what I did is I reached out, you know, my brother-in-law helped me, um, some industry professionals helped, but, you know, I just became an absolute student. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate to be able to combine, like the focus on building a high-performance team that was very much football and banking, banking around how to analyze how companies grow, manage risk, um, create value, uh, you know, manage cash, all those sort of business acumen things. And then Bluestone was like, how do I understand? What, how do you scale something that's hospitality-based, that's people-based? How do you tie it into this lifestyle movement and become a part of someone's daily ritual? And that was the, that is and still remains the, the mandate of Bluestone Lane. Like we are there, you're a premium hospitality, coffee and hospitality brand influenced by Australia. It's meant to provide our locals with a genuine daily escape. Like it's part of their daily ritual. And even during this unprecedented health crisis we've kept 14 stores of our 52 open literally just to be a beacon of hope to provide our, our locals with some some skate whether they walk out of the apartment for 10 minutes to get a coffee you know it could be the whole lot of the day and it's like incumbent upon us to to try and provide that and i, I think it was it was so important um there's a number of other reasons why you know keeping you know including keeping as many jobs as you can preserving as many jobs as you can but really like we wanted to be a signal that yeah life is really really tough and we're really challenged right now but we have to persist we have to keep the candle on so that um you know there's that that our locals out there feel like okay bluestone is not giving in they're going to keep going and uh, you know we're, we're um, you know that was been that's been the whole mentality. Even though you know economically it probably wasn't the best decision in the short term. <laughs> that's incredible self awareness to like know you're like, hey, I haven't worked in hospitality, and even though I have this skill set, like that, I I can I I need to find some people to help me figure it out. When you're starting Bluestone, when like when this you know you have this idea and you're starting to execute it. It sounds like it wasn't the typical entrepreneurial story or the, you know, the glorified one where you're like, drop everything, start it, everything all in. It sounds like it was kind of like, it, like you were talking about, it. it was very calculated and measured. Did it feel like that or did it, did it feel like the kind of all or nothing? No, no, you're exactly right. It was very, very calculated. And I did not leave Blue, I did not leave my banking job until, you know, three years into Bluestone. So we had 12 stores up. We were doing over 10 million was when I jumped. I'm not this huge. I'm not a huge believer. I think that, that, you know, I, I have a conflicting view to a lot of other entrepreneurs, but you know, this notion of like throwing it all in and, um, you know, 
uh, fail fast and, you know, it's okay to fail. Like, I think that's just nonsense. I'm like, why would you want to fail? Like, why would you want to, like the brain damage, the loss of confidence, losing people's money. I was like, that, that's, there's, there's a risk spectrum. And I was, I was certainly very comfortable in taking a lot of risk, but just to do, you know, throw it all in. I don't know. Like, I think that that's really the only people that screwed that are those who are incredibly successful. Right. You know, like, you know, Elon Musk tell everyone, Hey, just throw it all in and go for it. Yeah. But it's like, there's only one Elon Musk in the world. Right? For me, I felt like the side gig, um, the part-time gig that then moves into full time was just a lot more balanced way to go about it. And, you know, I, I didn't want to be unemployed. I, I had to, had a visa. I had all these sort of key things. Um, you know, I wanted to, to keep, I wanted to be able to save for an apartment. I wanted to be able to go on an overseas holiday. Like I, I had things in life that I think are really important. Like for me, traveling and holidays are so important because you learn so much about culture. You learn so much about your global awareness and it's absolutely vital as a leader as an entrepreneur to understand like the way other people live and what they appreciate and you know i i just didn't you know i just didn't uh, agree with that so you know it was very prescriptive and i wanted to make sure that it was ready for for me to jump in for two reasons one i wanted to make sure that the business was robust and financially sustainable enough um and then secondly if i went in full time uh, I know I was obviously the founder and CEO from day one, right? And I was, uh, but if I went full-time CEO, I think that I would have pushed the business too hard. The way I was running and the, the activity and uh, the stuff we were doing, to then go into the small business and, you know, to push it as hard as I probably would have and demand high-performance standards that early on, it could have broken the whole, could have broken the whole spirit. So, um, yeah, you know, so I... I I think that it was the the right way to go about it. It really, it really was. So, yeah, that that would be my advice to everybody. Like, I don't think you have to go in all in. I don't, I don't think that that's actually, and more often than not, the right call. I know a lot of people have gone on it all in, and like the probability of small companies working out is is still pretty low. They're, they're really unhappy. They're really insecure. They're really sad. They're frustrated. And I don't know. I think there's this, this is there's this opportunity to do it both and then just trial and learn. And like, there's no restriction on when you're not working to study and yeah, you might pay some other sacrifices. You can't go out as much. You can't, you can't watch TV. You can't watch Netflix, whatever. Like you might have to read, you might have to go meet people. There's plenty of time in a day. And especially like this, one of the great things I think I did back then was break up every hour, like write every hour, what you actually do. And you know, I have this conversation with some people in my team. And they say, oh, they're so busy, so busy. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. Okay, so we still, let's work out how, like, what you do in your day. So write every 30 minutes or every hour what you did. And, wow, it's pretty scary, you know, like, even in myself, I, you know, if I did it, you know, today, I'd be like, wow, that hour did nothing. That hour did nothing. That hour I actually, you know, like, on social media or, like, reading things. I'm like, did I really need to do that? Like, versus all my priorities? Well, maybe yes, but often no. There's opportunities there. I, don't, I just don't believe that, you know, there's this glorifying failing and, you know, going all in and taking all this risk. I don't know. I think, you know, you can, you can, you can achieve it all and do it in a more managed way if you're, uh, you're organised and if you're prepared to, um, you know, to learn. But, you know, that was, that's just my view on it right now. I 
Yeah. And maybe it's also shaped the fact that Bluestone's been sort of somewhat successful in the short term and I did it, you know, as a side job until I moved full time. For sure. I, I think that's awesome advice. I, I think that's, for me, that's a great spot to end on. David, what are, what other questions do you have? Yeah, I mean, what I love just asking really successful this question. Like, did you ever have like an aha moment? Like, obviously, you were in the Starbucks and you were seeing uh, like, hey, this is an opportunity. But while you were scaling, right, was you said at the 15th store, you ended up leaving your job. Was that the, like, I'm really onto something here and it's working. Hey. Yeah, store three, right? The first time we did a cafe. So we did two coffee shops, in one in Midtown, one in Financial District, but we did a cafe in West Village. And we took this decrepit spot. Um, it was a previous barbershop. They were in default. Um, it wasn't a great street, that part of Greenwich Avenue. But this, I, we, I could just see the potential. It was on the corner of Perry and Greenwich Avenue. And um, anyway, we took a punt on it. It was... It was amazing how it all worked out. The first day of demolition, you know, I, I got a couple of mates to, to come in and uh, paid them, you know, a few bucks. And I think, like, maybe didn't pay them at all, just bought them a few beers. And um, I was there with the demolition crew. And within the first five minutes, I, I stand on a rusty nail. I ended up having to go to ER. The first time I've ever gone to ER in America, I needed to have this tetanus shot. The whole process is like three hours to get a freaking tetanus shot. It was like the most convoluted thing. I couldn't believe. And anyway, um, so um, I stood in hell on the first couple, first five minutes. Come back. We end up doing the demo anyway. Build the store out, open it up, and it just was special. Like it was, I think probably. And I was told this by by um a friend of mine who who worked in the store, who's now in Melbourne. He, he said like you know it was the best cafe in the world. At a period of time now. now this is like in mid 2014 this is like you know well before the big aussie premium cafe movement in uh the states particularly in new york and you know like it's pretty hard when taylor swift walks in and then she comes back the next day again and then every sort of victoria's secret models there and then like all these famous actors are there and then david beckham's there and then you know it's just like wow, I I didn't realize that that this is what that you know, be this aspirational or in desire. You know, we had to get in on the weekend because we don't have reservations. You know, it's like an hour, an hour and fifteen minute wait. You know, I had I'll never forget in winter that year. So at the end of twenty fourteen, I rock up. It's snowing, dumping snow, and I, I wanted to check in um, and see how the staff were doing. And I walk in there, and Cameron Diaz is sitting at the front. You know, in the cold with her partner, you know, you know um, it's one of the Madam Brothers from Good Charlotte. I, mm-hmm. And um, I'm like, go to the GM, Tony. I said, mate, what, why is Cameron Diaz out the front? Like, what? And he said, what do you want me to do? You know, I've got this waiting list. She's in the list. You know, I, I can't move her forward ahead of other people. And I thought that was just such a beautiful symbol the type of culture we're creating that everyone is welcome everyone's a local um there's no vip treatment whether you're rich and famous or or you know a struggling actor it's everyone is treated the same and it was such a great australian like example of australian value that you know it doesn't matter what you've achieved it matters like the type of person you are and uh you know we're all we all talk, share that commonality um and yeah so i think that was the moment i was like wow this can actually be 
this could actually be a real company. It could be a real brand. And uh, I think that was the catalyst. And then it was just getting to a certain scale where we, um, where we, where we knew we could grow because we'd been able to raise some money and, and the, the, I could see where it could go and it was time to go all in. I either needed to get out or go all in and uh, went all in. And, you know, since then it's been a wild ride. Uh, and and certainly right now the the most crazy and uh, challenging in our entire history. But we will get through it. Uh, but it's not going to be easy. But you know, I'm, you know, having a platform like this and having the ability to share a bit of the background, um, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate the, the chance to tell the story. And hopefully, it, you know, helps a few people out there that might be might be struggling and thinking that it's it's you know it's really tough and it is but you can find ways and you keep reinvesting you keep learning you keep challenging your thought process and your, your strategy and your value proposition like you'll become an absolute student of your business and you'll work out what a it's going to work b it might not work you see you know if for it to be able to work these are all the things i need to bring in um that clarity will give you the best chance to succeed Absolutely. We, we appreciate you sharing that message, Nicholas. And also, I, I'm sure avid listener to this show, Cameron Diaz, now she knows where to go for her <laughs> to take that problem up with. Well, yeah. real, Dan. Thank, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, David, you, you got a last question? Yeah, just just last thing would be where, where can our listeners find you on Instagram uh, just to follow you and your personal journey moving forward? Yeah, sure. So um, for Bluestone Lane, certainly on Instagram, Bluestone Lane, uh, we've got about, uh, the content's great there. I think we have nearly 80,000 followers. Um, and for uh, that's probably the best um, channel other than our website, bluestonelane.com. For me personally, uh, the best is probably LinkedIn, actually. Um, that's where I write and uh, do my little blog posts or share things that I think are interesting. Um, you can find me on Instagram as well, but it's primarily photos of my kids. It's not that exciting. Um, so, you know, I would, I would, I would say certainly um, uh, LinkedIn for myself personally. You can find me, just search Nicholas Stone, Bluestone Lane, and then uh, the Instagram and website for the BL. And, uh, you know, we've been doing a ton um, for our Fuel for Heroes campaign, which is supporting first responders and healthcare heroes. And, uh, you know, we've donated 45,000 copies already in five weeks to uh, nearly 30 hospitals in four states. Uh, so that's been like incredibly rewarding and given us such great sort of incentive and motivation to, to push through this challenge as an organization and then you know, come out the other side. Nicholas, man, just thank you so much. You dropped so much value in this podcast and like, thank you. Keep, just keep doing what you're doing. I, <laughs> I really, really appreciate having you on. <laughs> Thanks, guys.